Hi, good morning, everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan, a sub-series called Short Takes and Updates, talking about sustainability in Japan. I'm JJ Walsh, your host here in Hiroshima, Japan, and today I am joined by... Which side are we? I'm Tova Kinoka, and I'm in, well, just outside Yokohama. And this is Shirley. I'm also in Yokohama. Nice to meet you again. Yeah, we have two of you in Yokohama now. Yeah, it's the place to be. <laughs> so we're starting with some interesting news that, of course, affects many families, uh, many working women who are mothers as well, working parents. Uh, the official age of adulthood in Japan has just been lowered as of April 1st this month to 18. Now, interestingly, as we were discussing before we started, uh, you still have to wait to smoke or drink until 20, but a lot of the heavy legal things like uh, going to jail <laughs> as an adult, uh, filing taxes, uh, doing anything kind of legal or banking has been lowered to 18. Really interesting. Any, what do you guys have a take on this? I think this really is interesting and um, it kind of connects into a conversation I was having with my daughter yesterday. Um, so she's uh, she's 16 this year and she at her school, Yokohama International School, they have some a subject called Individuals and Societies, INS, and they cover a whole range of things in this and um, it's sort of they look at uh, social issues, they look at history and things like that. But yesterday, the teacher asked them in class, what do you in your next year, when you go into year 10, what do you really want to uh, learn about in this class? And several of them said taxes and things, life skills, money management and stuff like that. Um, kind of adult skills, if you like, adulting skills. Um, so I think that's really interesting because she was saying, just her and her peers talking about it, they feel really unprepared. They don't know, um, you know, once they leave home, how do they deal with things like taxes? How do they manage their own money and budget and, and bills and things like that? Um, so it's interesting, you know, if this age is being lowered from uh, 20 to 18, that's going to happen two years earlier. They've got to deal with that. And I think a lot of them um, are feeling very unprepared. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it it is different in every country. Uh, like surely you were saying maybe also 18 in India, is it? Yes, that's true. And in America, it's 18 is the legal age, but you have to wait till 21 to uh, drink. And, you know, there are different ages for mm -hmm. different things. So like you said, Tova, this could have effects on education, high school education. Are we kind of leaning to and it would make sense to start teaching high schoolers right. about more adult things about filing tax about not falling for pyramid schemes which I was mm. reading is one of the the things that a lot of young people are now falling for in right. Japan they don't have this adult savvy I guess uh, many adults don't have it either um, but we have to teach them about the real world maybe a little bit more in the high school system. Very much so, very much so. Shirley, I mean, in India, in the education system, is there anything like that? Do they teach sort of life skills, if you like, before people graduate, or is it just academic? 
it's mostly academic. We do have extracurricular stuff like sewing, knitting, but it's very gender based, I would say. Which <laughs> right. Needs to get better. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, actually what what's interesting in India is that like the legal age of adulthood, especially marriage, because like child marriages was such a common thing mm -hmm. in India. So the current like parliament has decided to increase the marriage like limit for girls from 18 to 21. And I think that's awesome. <laughs> and I'm totally wow. for I it. I believe in Japan, it's still 16 for girls. Um, I and think they raised it this time. They like raised it? The, okay. Well, that's with good. With the adult, right. Exactly. Yeah. With the adult rule, I think they increased it from 16 to 18. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Now, Tova, this leads into uh, your topic about mindset. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think this sort of, shift in mindset I mean here we're talking about sort of moving from being a dependent if you like in a child to a, an adult mindset and being sort of more independent the mindset shift um, which is something I talk about an awful lot um, is so well this is in the sustainability leadership context here and looking at what is the the shift that is needed there to in some ways as well, stop being reactive and being pre, uh, proactive, as you can see the second point there, moving from just sort of thinking about the, your own actions and, and the impact on your life to thinking about how do my actions impact others around me? And you can think about that as an individual, but also as organizations, you know, looking out at our value chain um, and understanding the impact relationship our company has with um, the communities that we touch and the, the suppliers, but sort of way beyond just the direct contacts as well. Um, so this is something we do, um, it's very sort of fundamental to the work I do with uh, organizational culture change to embed sustainability. And last week, um, I had the great fortune to uh, go and do a session for Hitotsubashi um, ICS, which is a business school, one of the top business schools in Japan. And the um, the course, they've got a new course there, which is all around sustain or leading for sustainability. Um, so I did one of their, their sessions as part of that course, and we were looking at mindset shift. And it was an, an amazing bunch of people, actually. There were, um, I think, 18 participants in the class um, from all over the world, not just Japan. I think maybe about four or five of them were Japanese. The rest were all from different countries, from India, from Bangladesh, from uh, Philippines, um, you know, all over, which was really interesting to hear all these different perspectives around sustainability, how aware people were. And they, it's an exec MBA. So they were um, all a little bit older than sort of maybe the sort of fresh students, if you like. They've all got, you know, um, a significant amount of work experience behind them. Um, but just very interesting to, to hear the different sort of um, takes on sustainability, what it means to them, um, and very much influenced by how they've grown up and the the sort of environment that they've grown up in and how directly that is impacted by things like social issues or um, environmental issues. So it was a really, really um, rich session, I think, um, for me, because I, I spent a lot of time working with, well, most of my time working with corporates, right? So it's in one company, you're talking to people just about 
that company's um, impact and, and stuff. So it was really interesting to, to work with a group of people who were representing many different organizations, um, but still looking at collectively, how do we need to be making this mindset shift so that sustainability just becomes part of everything that we're, we're doing? Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's it's connected in my mind just now to something that I've been researching more because uh, travel is still not back yet. Um, so I am looking for other job opportunities, work opportunities. And I came across this great article by Rochelle Kopp on her consulting network, Japan Intercultural. And she's talking about um, how to train Japanese staff to do interviewing in a way that leaves the door open for something later on, not creating any kind of block in the process mm -hmm. between the interviewee and the interviewer. For example, uh, don't, you know, insult them or uh, make any prejudiced remark about gender is a very obvious mm -hmm. one. Um, but use it as an opportunity for good branding for your business as a way to add transparency to the kind of business that you have. Mm -hmm. And I just found this article so positive and so wonderful to come across. Uh, so many great takeaways there. And I think, like you said, Tova, as we have MBA programs in Japan, as we have uh, businesses in Japan, like you work for, Shirley, um, trying to appeal to and attract more international client uh, employees as well as clients, um, you really want to use any kind of uh, interaction in the interview process as a way to develop good relationships with the public, people who are yeah. applying for the job, whether they get the job or not. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought that was a great article, great point there. Interesting. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's you had good experiences, Shirley, as you were applying for jobs here? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's funny because like the application process, as you know, is so different in Japan compared to like America, for example. Having personal relationships with your interviewer is a norm outside. Like, I think it's a part of the process. Oh, send a message to the hiring manager. But here it's like, oh, is it too much? Can I do it? <laughs> Am I being too pushy? You know, like mm -hmm. you have to think about the cultural aspect as well while interviewing so that puts another layer to it i guess but yeah yeah very much I'm, so i'm writing a medium article about my experiences not naming names um <laughs> but just talking about uh, this great advice from rochelle and wouldn't it be great if all the companies heard this advice and i'm using it as a great research opportunity to, mm -hmm. to get to know what the situation is a bit more in Japan, because I spent 21 years at women's university training my Japanese students how to take part in interviews to put their best self forward. Mm. But quite often, no matter how wonderfully they presented themselves, they were often derailed by quite sexist comments about when are they getting married? Are they going to have kids? You know, all those disqualifying answers, which are so impossible to answer one way or the other. 
there was also a great article by Japan Times a couple years ago talking about uh, even having the gender choice on an application form maybe should be removed for people who don't identify as one or the other. But then the counter argument is, but how do you show that you're a more balanced, diverse and inclusive workforce if you don't have these qualifications either? So it's not as simple as, as you might think, right? Very much so. Um, and I think this is, is something that a lot of companies are struggling with right now. Um, you know, gender equality or just diversity more broadly, um, you know, is it's a really difficult topic, right? It's not just um, as simple as checking the boxes and saying, yep, now we're diverse, we've got all these people. You really have to look at all the processes within the company. Um, you know, how are they hiring? How are they messaging? Um, you know, who they are and what they want to do. How are they um, promoting people and supporting them? And I know it's something that you know, comes into our work a lot and, and people say, oh, you know, is, is it really sustainability? But of course it is. You look at the SDGs, this is, you know, absolutely part of it. Gender equality is in there. Um, and uh, sort of diversity and inclusion more broadly is very much part of sustainability. So I think, you know, this is something that, is on the radar. Japan particularly has a long way to go to catch up on this, like you were saying, JJ. I mean, it's, yeah, there are still, uh, you know, experiences that we're hearing about from people going through interviews where you just can't believe what they're being asked. Um, and but I am, I am happy to report yeah. mm -hmm. that I was interviewing with a very international global company and the Japanese staff Mm -hmm. were fantastic, engaging with That's me good. in a very transparent uh, interaction. And mm -hmm. I really got the feeling that they were thinking about my ideas more than my gender and appearance and age. Mm -hmm. But on the American partner side, I really felt judged from mm -hmm. the very beginning. And I didn't feel yeah. like they were talking about my ideas at all. So mm -hmm. I was really happy to report that the Japanese side was doing a great job. Keep it up. You know? That's really, really good to hear. And I think it would, it would be great um, to hear from companies like that. You know, how are they managing that process and how are they preparing people to go and interview, to do these interviews, you know, the interviewers, um, because I think there's a lot of focus on the interviewees and how do you prepare to, to be interviewed, right? But that works both ways. This is a you know a two-way communication thing, and um, I think often the the hiring managers are not given a lot of support. They're just you know told go out. You need to. We need this. You know these people. Here's the profile of what we're looking for. Off you go. Ask the questions. Um, without, like you say, necessarily thinking about what what sort of um, is appropriate or not in the interview. And, and times have shifted. And can I actually ask this? And is that fair? How will that make this other person feel. Um, so I think there needs to be a lot more dialogue in companies around that and also um, a lot more support for the managers. Absolutely. And if you're doing interviews, just ask yourself that one basic question. Would you ask that same question regardless of that person's gender or age? If not, it's probably not a good question. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a wonderful TED talk exactly on that point um, by... 
I want to say Kristen Roche, uh, no, so Kristen Presner, who is um, HR director for Roche Pharmaceuticals. And she did a tech talk on, um, I think the title was, Are You Biased? Um, and she started the talk, you know, she's the global head of a big company. And she said, are you biased? I am. And she discovered that even as a woman, she was biased against quite often female uh, people she was interviewing for promotions or for hiring. Um, and she sort of coined the, the hashtag uh, flip it to test it. And it was exactly that. JJ. She was just saying, you know, flip that around. If this were the opposite gender or a different age group or whatever, would I still, you know, ask that question? Would it be valid? If not, nope. <laughs> Would I still make that same judgment? Um, and it's just a really simple kind of check, I think, that we can do. Yeah. I thought about this a lot when I was um, teaching. And, mm. you know, as a teacher, you know that you have some bias. You, I'm sorry to say, uh, prefer some students over others because <laughs> they're more engaging or they come up with the, the answers that help the conversation or the class flow. Um, so when I had them do assignments, I always had them write their names on the back of the assignment. Hmm. And I had to own that I had a bias and would have to read the assignment before I saw who it was. And I think if we in include that in our society infrastructure, in our corporate yeah. infrastructure, because we know we have inherent biases, that just makes so much sense to to work around our bias yeah. in some way, right? Yeah, yeah. To recognize them and then look at how we, you know, like you say, there there are simple workarounds for some of them, um, not so easy for others. But it, we can take steps to deal with it. Shelley, you put a, a link in. Um, yeah, I think you had an interesting link there. Yes, yes. actually, that? yeah. Just what Toa was talking. So I took a class on unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. And I think this test is absolutely amazing in identifying the unconscious biases you have. So it could be sexual, racial. There are like different kinds of tests you can take. And it's really nice that intuitively. So it's like they show you two images and they tell you to pick one of the answers. Like even though you think that that is the right answer, like it's so quick that sometimes they show you the same question a few times. So then mm -hmm. it's very it's a very intuitive test that helps you understand what your unconscious biases are. And for me, as somebody who's like always like working towards gender equality, I noticed that I also had a percentage of like gender bias, you know. So, yeah, yeah it's exactly. very interesting. I, I would totally recommend to take that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just men who have Gosh, no. gender bias, right? And it, yeah. it's really hurtful, really? actually, when it comes from women. Um, <laughs> and you're like, really? But but then it goes to something we talked about before, Shirley, about that the marginalized communities, right? And how um, people who are from the minority community, when they are accepted, don't always open the door for other people who are minorities, right? right. So mm -hmm. there's a, it's complicated, right? Complex, it is really complicated. psychologically. Yeah. And these things are very, very deeply embedded, right? These these biases. I mean, there's a reason they're called unconscious biases. We don't know we have them much of the time. They're they're very much part of 
you know, our, our lives growing up and the, the influences we have around us. And so it's not as though they're there with malicious intent very often. It's just that that's how we've grown up. Um, that's what we've accepted as, as right or normal. Um, and challenging that can be very, very painful um, and difficult. But I think it's yeah something we need to be constantly striving to do as individuals, but also very much within organizations and the processes and and going into technology and things, Shelley, as well. I mean, looking at, I think we've touched on it before, but sort of developing systems and AI and things like this. I mean, there are going to be our own, the developers' biases will be in there. Yes. I have yeah. noticed recently, speaking of AI and gender bias, uh, if you use Google Translate or uh, DeepL Translate or any of the AI translation services, um, try it. Put in uh, Tanaka-sensei or put in Tanaka-san in Japanese. Quite often, you will have Mr. Tanaka Ooh. come up. So there is, and Shirley probably knows much more about this than me, but if you put junk in, junk comes out. So as data is being put in with a bias, mm -hmm. you're creating AI or a technology which also has a bias. So if you ever see that, and this is something I, I have a, a common conversation with Google Sensei or any other AI, if there's a way to, to send my response, I always say, mm. you need to change this. This is not <laughs> gender neutral and it really should be. Yeah. Right? I do have something to say on this. It's like, it is their fault. That's true. Like the people who um, coded. There's also another layer to machine learning because what goes inside machine learning, what helps it to learn is the vast amount of text and books that you put in. Mm -hmm. So probably it's common that that name in many different like artifacts and books has been Mr. Right. So it So like the machine learning algorithm learned that it's Mr. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we, I don't know if we can rewrite all the text, but <laughs> we can still like, we can still code and make changes and make sure that it's more gender neutral, at least like that, yeah. that is possible. Mm -hmm. Well, it's in Japanese, that is a general neutral term. That's it's true. Something, yeah. something, sensei, something, right. something, son, right? right. So, there really should be caught as a gender neutral term that comes out, um, not a gender specific one, right? But it's all interesting, very important to keep assessing and improve along the way, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, Tova, let's switch gears a little bit. You want to talk about the Nordic event that you went to, Nordic Summit? Yeah, so this was uh, the, the Nordic Talks, um, so a series of talks um, convened by uh, Nordic countries. And they. so I was attending just uh, online last night, listening to the discussion there about democracy and women's representation in politics. Um, so we had a Japanese minister um, talking first. It was supposed to be a female minister, but unfortunately she had to drop out. So it ended up being two men talking about gender representation in Japanese politics, which was interesting. But, um, but also we had uh, two um, Nordic countries represented as well. Yesterday was Iceland and Sweden. Um, and it was just really interesting to hear kind of the different approaches to, you know, the 
I think Iceland is ranked number one on the world's gender equality list. Um, and hearing the experiences there from the lady who had been a politician in Iceland for I think 20 years, um, is now working in private sector. Uh, and just sort of hearing about their journey and how they'd achieved that. Um, and the moderator who was uh, um, a Japanese guy was actually asking some really, really good questions, very practical things on, you know, how can we, um, engage different sectors. So how can we engage politicians or um, sort of politically affiliated groups, particularly when they're very male dominated, um, you know, in the conversation on this. And they, they talked about quotas and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on quotas and are they a good thing? Are they a bad thing? And the, the politician from Iceland uh, said that when she was in her sort of 20s, 30s and very perhaps idealistic, she said she thought quotas were not necessary. You know, if I have everything that's needed, you know, I deserve a place at the table, I can get a place at the table. So I don't believe quotas should be necessary. But she said now she's age 55, she has two daughters, um, and she's seen how little gender equality has progressed in her you know, lifetime. And despite um, everything that's happening, she said, absolutely, quotas need to be there, the numbers matter. Um, so it was interesting to to hear sort of how her mindset and her approach had shifted with her experience and with time. And I, for me, I think that helped sort of solidify the argument. I, I've been sort of on the fence for a while with quotas and wondering whether, you know, they're a good thing or not. And in Japan, we've seen them set quotas for, you know, women in politics and then backtrack from that saying it's too difficult. Um, but I think really it's about just being brave and setting the number, taking the action. And she made the really good point that, you know, you can set a quota at, say, 50-50 and say we want 50% women and men on boards or in, you know, uh, in our cabinet, whatever that situation is. And the question was, oh, but perhaps some men would see that as unfair if it's 50-50. But she said, but we're 50% of the world's population. How can that be unfair? 1%. In right. Fact. There you yeah. go. There you go. So um, how can and that Japan, possibly be unfair? That's a great example of how mm -hmm. the, the voluntary quota is not working. Uh, for many years now, they've had the voluntary quota for businesses and government of 20%. Yep. And even in 2022, we are seeing just a fraction yeah. of mm -hmm. representation or women in leadership at that level. Mm -hmm. um, one of the best quotes I heard, I think from Sweden years ago, was a woman in parliament saying everybody was arguing about the quota not going to work. And a lot of people saying, we're just not going to find enough women <laughs> who represent 50% of government or the company or whatever. But when you make that commitment, it absolutely has to happen by this certain date. Suddenly, magically, mm. you find qualified women. Right. They show up. So that argument really doesn't hold water uh, no, when you see it in action right mm -hmm. so yeah. that's good to keep in mind i think absolutely i mean it's yes it feels sort of strange sometimes perhaps i think to impose artificial um 
you know, sort of constraints, if you like, and it must be 50-50 on this. But I think if that's the way it gets things moving and there's there's research to to back that up, um, then absolutely that's that's the only way we're going to shift things quickly enough. And that goes for, for many things, whether that's, you know, climate ambitions and net zero targets and things, or whether it's, um, you know, gender equality on boards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Shirley, you have a news article about Katanji Brown Jackson, Judge Jackson. <laughs> yeah, it's it was just recently like all over the news and I'm like, yay. <laughs> so there have been like 115 Supreme Court justices. She's one of the six women who did it and the first black woman wow. ever to serve as a Supreme Court justice. And that's awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> Such a groundbreaking achievement. Uh, I'm so glad she was nominated, but I'm so glad that she is going to be confirmed. Uh, we should know for sure by next week. I tried to talk about this in my Japanese class recently, and the the vocabulary in Japanese is really hard. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure I got a point across my point at all. But the, my idea was, it's not just about breaking barriers for women, women of color. It is about bringing up everybody yeah. and she comes from a background as a public defender and one of the only people on the highest court in the land to have that experience representing people who don't have financial means to hire a lawyer mm -hmm. you know it's representing so many uh, marginalized groups in American society and mm -hmm. I think this has a great effect for Japan as well to see uh, representation in the American courts, I think, has a good effect around the world. Absolutely. I mean, you can't be what you can't see, right? There's that sort of mm -hmm. quote. And I think that, yeah, we, we need role models like her so that others can look to that and go, right, okay, they can do it, we can do it. A bit yeah. of peer pressure <laughs> can be a very helpful thing. It sounds a lot of pressure. She's taking the whole like community on her shoulders now. Yeah. <laughs> But we have to remember that it's not only up to her, right? It's up to everybody around to support her. Very much so. And uh, not attack her for mm -hmm. things that aren't related to her, which we've seen in action, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, one minute, 30 seconds left. I do have a book recommendation. I am loving this book, uh, The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter mm. Wollenbin. I'm sorry, I just do not know how to say your name. Uh, it is fascinating. I know we've recommended books about trees before. I lear am learning so many things about how our understanding of trees, like many industries, like the meat industry, um, uh, influencing our nutrition pyramid, right? Like the information we know about trees comes a lot from commercial forestry. Um, so this idea that trees shouldn't be too close together, we have to cut them to space them out and stuff, they're debunking a lot of these myths in this book. So it's it's a really fascinating read. I would recommend it to everybody if you're interested in trees and how they communicate. Well, we should be there. <laughs> very, very important. <laughs> they send a fragrance out to other trees to communicate. It's Yes, I'm, I'm suffering with that a bit at the moment. Oh, no. Yeah. Thank you, trees. <laughs> Love them. Well, but that yeah. is our 30 minutes. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Tova. 
Thank you. I was just going to say we didn't get a chance to talk about the IPCC report, which came out uh, a couple of days ago now. Um, so we'll, we'll have to leave that till next week. But very, would highly recommend go and read the summaries um, for that uh, if you can. It's extremely important for all of us. Yeah, I didn't think we could fit that in in 30 seconds. So <laughs> next week. I thought we'd wait till next time for that. Sounds but good. we'll start with that next week, hopefully. Great. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining. Wonderful to have you on this journey of updates and short takes. And see you next week, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I dropped the armor, now I'm bolder.